Okay, so hey, if you want to help with Sound Team, um, it's a great opportunity to serve our community, and we need more people. So go ahead and reach out to Josh Caperton. He's the guy in the in the back with the blonde hairish. Um, he's okay, but there's his number if you want to. You know, we have a, a, a weekly rotation, so you won't be doing it too often, but it's a good opportunity to learn how to use the soundboard and help our church. Donuts and coffee, okay. Okay, so yeah, that's a, an opportunity for our adult ministry to meet with our college ministry. Just get together. This is going to be September 8th at 10 a.m. Um, go to the Denton North Facebook to find the Facebook event and sign up. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, so the next announcement is actually my announcement. So hello. Um, here's a QR code. So if you're in our adult ministry and you haven't done FOJ, which is Focus on Jesus, is our Bible study that we do with Focus, um, started in Focus. But if you haven't done that yet because you're new or if you want to be a part of our one of our life transformation groups, it's just a group of about three of uh, adults of the same sex um, meeting weekly, talking about spiritual things as well as just a life things and sharing those. We have we have like a format of things you can follow, but also it's pretty flexible of just getting together and building stronger community. So I would like if you are interested in either of these, go ahead and take a picture of this and sign up for this survey and say like, hey, I'm a dude. I'm interested in these. Um, but we'll also be posting these in the next couple of weeks as well. Yeah, take a picture. It should take you to the website. Oh, it should pop up if you have a smartphone. And if the, if the QR code isn't working for you, I'll post it on the Facebook page as well. Or you can talk to me and say, hey, I'm interested in it. I don't have Facebook. Cool. Thank you. Uh, okay, great. My name is Brad. I'm one of the ministers here, uh, if you don't know me. Uh, okay, great. Yeah. And um, I have a couple announcements myself, including the one up there that uh, I probably miscommunicated, so that's my fault. Uh, so I'll start with the small groups are next week for those of you who are out of college. So we'll be starting those. If you already haven't received an email about those, there's five of them. We'll post them on the Facebook page where they're at. Uh, we have two on Tuesday, three on Wednesday. So if you don't know about one of our small groups and you are not in college, let me know. Let Leslie know. Let Ryan know. Austin know. Someone. And we'll get you in one of those, uh, those groups starting next week. Cool? Yeah? Good? The second one uh, is you can put that announcement back up and I'll explain it a little bit better. So Willie Hudspeth, who is the president of the NAACP in Denton, who's also come and spoken here before, uh, has for about 19 years now been trying to remove the Confederate uh, memorial from the square. I realize that there's a variety of viewpoints in here. Some of you think that's a great idea. Some of you think it's a terrible idea. I'm not here to tell you what you should believe about that. I'm simply telling you that there's an opportunity for you if you choose to join. Two opportunities, really. Um, the most important is to, on Tuesday mornings at 9 o'clock, go to the not the courthouse on the square, but the actual courthouse in Denton. It's a city council meeting and attend with Willie at nine o'clock. He's there every Tuesday and voice your opinions on it. What? Okay, well then Ryan is right all along and I'm wrong. Who knew? Ryan, you've done your homework. Yeah, well, that's great. So the commissioner's court apparently is at the courthouse, uh, the actual courthouse where on Sunday nights as well, Willie protests with a number of people at about 7 o'clock, 8 o'clock, uh, the actual memorial. So, And what Willie is going for with this memorial, and there's, it's got, obviously in our nation created a lot of conflict and people are upset one way or the other. Um, but where the uh, sort of memorial comes from, at least on our square, comes from the Daughters of the Confederacy, uh, which really was a sort of hiddenly racist group a long time ago. Whether it is now or not is up to you. You decide 
Um, and the goal of at least Willie's efforts so far have been to try to turn the water back on. That used to be a whites-only drinking fountain. Uh, and most recently, about a year ago, the commissioner's court decided to put some material saying things about slavery and things like that. The problem is the, the memorial, number one, hasn't happened. Uh, the information also, the suggestion that they have, the new elected commissioner's court looks pretty pathetic. And so basically what Willie is going for now, again, whether you agree or disagree, is to move the memorial to uh, the historical part of town where the Black Museum is, where the 1800s Museum is, right there where the market is, and to get the water turned on. So if that's something that you can get behind and you want to be a part of, great. If it's something that you want to not be a part of and oppose, now you know where to oppose it. Uh, square house at nine o'clock on the morning, uh, um, real square house, real courthouse on the square at nine o'clock, or Sunday nights actually, uh, you know, being involved with that. But Willie has asked us personally to be a part of that. So for those of you who can carve out some time, um, you know, at 9 a.m. to go uh, voice your opinion on that. And you don't even have to voice your opinion. You could just sort of sit in the audience. Anytime the city council meeting has more than like four citizens, the city council members actually sort of perk up and pay attention to what's going on. Uh, as you can imagine, nobody really wants to go to a city council meeting. I don't know why, because they're so interesting. Uh, so, yes, 9 a.m., courthouse, Ryan's right. That, that, uh, that's exactly right. Okay, any questions about that? Yeah, no? Okay, so I'm hoping, and we'll be announcing this next couple weeks. Yeah, question, Margo. Yeah, I'm sure someone will do it. Someone who does Facebook. I've been told not to post on Facebook anymore, so. <laughs> I guess I get it. I, yeah, well, as little details as I had and didn't even trust my own people, I guess that makes sense. Uh, okay, so a few things. Number one is we have these amazing uh, pieces of artwork here that uh, Aaron and Tate uh, created for us, uh, facilitated by Grant. And this is just an opportunity for us to kind of have something a little bit more uh, reverent in our uh, you know, um, uh, building here, specifically when the artwork is gone, like it is randomly today. Uh, so we're gonna do an awe worship experience here in the next couple of weeks on that. Um, but I just wanted to take an opportunity to not necessarily explain those scriptures, but these are gonna be a focal point for us in our series, even for identity, uh, which I'm gonna explain a little bit of today. And so I just, if you get a chance, go tell Grant, Aaron, or Tate uh, how grateful you are. Uh, they are absolutely stunning and beautiful. They've been painted uh, on, I think, canvas. I don't really know anything about artwork. Uh, all I know is that they're pretty great. And uh, we picked these four scriptures because they, I think, represent pretty well uh, our church and uh, the ethics of our church and uh, passages that are really directed us as a church. And so definitely tell them that you're appreciative. We're going to uh, use those in the next couple of weeks. We didn't just sort of throw them in here, but we wanted you to get used to them and see them and have a little bit of mystery behind them first. Okay, great. So we are continuing in our series of identity. How many of you actually did the assignment last week and read Ephesians 2? Okay, right. Uh, read a psalm. All right, great. Well, I'll tell you like I always tell you in our sermon series, you will only get out of this what you put into it. If you choose not to do the homework, then coming and listening to me talk for 10 or 15 minutes or 20 or 30 or 80 uh, isn't going to help you much in rethinking your identity in Christ, okay? Particularly because this is a very difficult topic. So you can go back and listen to the sermon series all you want. If you don't do the work that uh, we're recommending and suggesting you do, you will get very little out of the sermon series. That's always that way. Preaching is simply an opportunity 
to kind of get you on the right track, narrow down a topic so that you can go back to the scripture, you can interact with the Holy Spirit and figure out what it is that God may be trying to tell you. You're not gonna get that from my words. That's a secondary source. You need to get it from a primary source, okay? So last week we mentioned that the Psalms will be one of the major sort of foundational focal points for our, our sermon series on identity. And the reason being is because the Psalms talk a lot about identity being tested in the highs of life and in the lows of life. We talked last week about how our identity is shaped more or less in the mundane aspects of our life from day to day, how we treat people, what we do, but it's often tested in the highs of highs and the low lows, and Psalms is full of high highs and low lows. So you gotta read through Psalms. In fact, I'm not even gonna ask who did the advanced assignment because probably none of you did where you actually try to take Ephesians 2 and develop uh, or, or find a psalm that matches that, okay? But that's gonna be the goal from here on out. And so psalms is sort of the first part. The second part, which I'm gonna discuss today, it's gonna be a little bit academic, so you might wanna write this down. I'm gonna try to make it short. Uh, I apologize, but it, we're laying a foundation, so it has to be a little bit heady, I think. Uh, is you're gonna have to go back through the New Testament and find some of the in Christ passages. There's over 170, 160 in Christ passages. This is Paul's favorite phrase. There's variations of it in the Lord, in God, with Christ. But anytime you see this phrase, it's an opportunity for you to hear from Paul, from one of the writers, how he thinks about Christian identity, who you are, where you belong. And we've talked about identity not being a unique thing about you necessarily, although that's part of identity, but identity being something that tells you where you belong, who you belong to, okay? And so the in Christ passages are going to, for the most part, uh, be the thing that shapes or the organization of this sermon series. And then this kind of a side note for the few of you who are interested in biographies or history or things like that, I'm going to pull in a lot of folks uh, over the course of the last 200 years of Christian history who have shaped both our own thinking about identity and or who have, you know, had real good questions, asked good questions about their own identity. Women and men of faith from the early Greek church fathers to some of the philosophers you've probably heard before, to some of the theologians you've heard, uh, to some voices in Asia and Africa today, things like that. So that's kind of a third sort of side point here. All right, so we're here in Ephesians 2. And uh, I actually, as I do with some regularity, messed up on the verses. You really should have read the whole chapter instead of 1 through 15, but since so few of you did, I'm sure that uh, we'll be fine. Uh, and uh, yeah, so we're going to read through this here in just a moment. Does someone mind going and getting my Bible? I forgot it. Uh, in the coffee room in the little green bag. It's that little red Bible with my wife's maiden name on there. Okay. So Noah, a good friend of mine who you probably haven't heard uh, mention in a while because uh, we sort of split ways business-wise. Those of you who don't know, I'm a welder. I weld trailers and uh, diesel trucks and all kinds of things. That's my primary business. And then I do a lot of mechanical work too on uh, cars and things like that. Well, Noah has taught me a lot about cars, pretty much most of what I know. He had his birthday Monday, so we went out on Friday to one of those all-you-can-eat steakhouses where you get the meat sweats, you know, after. It's not even all-you-can-eat. That's a bad way to put that because it's not like you're going up to a buffet. This is like the Brazilian steakhouse where they cut the meat right in front of you. And, you know, you eat one round, and then you're like, this is free. And you eat two rounds, and then you're like, this is free. And in the late afternoon, I felt pretty sick and slept for a long time. Anyway, um, I pulled him along to run an errand with me in Dallas. Before that, uh, I had to go pick up a bunch of trailer parts with the metal tariffs and stuff. Trailer parts are hard to get right now. It's a mess, whatever. 
And I was, Noah came with me, and I was telling uh, one of the guys that I uh, worked there with, uh, the salesman, just you know how much Noah's meant to me and how much he's he's trained me and 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 being a mechanic. Now, Noah, if you ever call him a mechanic, will virtually never agree that he's a mechanic. All right. So you know, naturally, I say, well, yeah, you know, he's a mechanic, and someone asks, oh, you're a mechanic, and he's like, mm, I don't know, you know. He just generally won't say that he's a mechanic. Now, this is actually really common of a lot of experts in the blue-collar uh, fields. People who won't identify as being one of these uh, categorizations, and there's probably a number of reasons why this is the case, okay? Probably on one hand, there's a humility from knowing, wait a second, there's nothing that necessarily makes me a mechanic. Okay, they could be a self-made mechanic, someone who didn't really go and get a certification, but just someone who sort of picked things up along the way. Or the other end of that could be they know a lot of people who call themselves mechanics, and they don't want to be, like me, associated with those kinds of people, you know, people who readily do that. Well, Christianity is a lot the same way. In Paul, what you're going to find in the in Christ statements are really two in particular, but kind of a third differentiation in how he talks about our identity. Step one is the objective, what God has done for us. What he's done for us. It's sort of like uh, if you've gotten a job, okay? Objectively, you've gotten that job. You're a programmer, you're an engineer, you're a whatever, okay? Tom came over yesterday for me to fix his seatbelts, which is just about one of the easiest jobs possible. Uh, now, I know Tom, and Tom wants to come and hang out with me because, you know, he's great and loves me dearly. But Tom is also an engineer who's brilliant who couldn't figure out how to change his seatbelts. But not only that, you should have seen him trying to put the hood latch down on the hood. Literally, I sort of turn around and look, and Tong is 10 minutes later trying to figure out how to put the hood latch down, okay? He's an engineer, right? But definitely not a mechanic. And that's okay, no big deal. But just because you've been hired onto a company and you are objectively working for them doesn't mean you are actually working in any way meaningful, growing in your work, a good engineer, a good computer programmer, a good social worker, whatever. You've just objectively, that's been done. You've been hired. You are that, at least for now. And in Christianity, Paul talks a lot about this objective view of Christianity. In Ephesians 2, when it talks about being made alive in Christ, that is objectively God has done that for us. He has literally brought us out of death and made us alive, as we're going to read in Ephesians 2. But often too many Christians stop there as if the objective part of what God has done is enough. But at least as many in Christ passages are what we would consider to be subjective passages, which means they have something to do more real time with a relationship that you have specifically with God, which is two-way. And in the end of Ephesians 22, as he talks about the church being built up into the kingdom of God, growing into the temple of God, that is an ongoing subjective process. Just in the same way that me being hired on as an engineer, I become a better engineer as time goes on subjectively. I learn things. I grow. I grow with the people who teach around me, with the experiences that I have. It's a subjective form of learning. It has to do with me and me moving forward. And so this, these distinctions are really, really important, okay? And so uh, in the In Christ passages, as you read through them, 
it's important to distinguish between the two because the objective passages, guys, are things that we ought to know God has done for us. They're not in the works, uh, happening slowly. They have been accomplished, been done, okay? He's not making you alive in Christ. He has made you alive in Christ. And too many Christians talk about this as sort of like, well, I'm becoming more and more alive. No, that's been done. I mean, you know, we can argue that there's an aspect of that you're becoming more fully human and free and all of those things, freedom from oppression, but that thing has been done for you. And too many Christians don't understand the things that God has already done in their lives, the things that they had no control over. So they're out there trying to get it done on their own. You're trying to earn the position of being an engineer when in reality you are already an engineer. The part of that process that's your part is the part where you're growing and, you know, becoming better and those kinds of things with that. Now, I know this sounds a little bit weird, but I'm going to try to uh, make more sense of it. And then naturally, a sort of a third point is when we actually apply these things and they they matter and uh, they actually benefit and impact the people around us. So let's read through um, Ephesians 2, 1 through 22. Let's try to tease some of this out. Uh, as we read through this, uh, one of the more famous um, in Christ passages, okay? So Ephesians 2, stop me if you kind of get lost or have questions. Uh, That's fine, no big deal. So as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air. That's such a a shot, uh, a disrespect, uh, casting shade, as Ronnie came and explained to us many months ago. Uh, on Satan, calls him the ruler of the kingdom of the air. What's he got ultimately? He's got air. That's what he's got, okay? The spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us who lived among them at one time, so this is a universal issue, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath, But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even while we were dead in our transgressions. So this wasn't like you had to figure out how to kind of like poke through the earth a little bit to just show there was some bit of life through you. And then God reached that hand underneath the ground and pulled you out and made you fully alive. While you were dead, not moving and worms were crawling through you, God made you alive. Objectively, he's done this, okay? And God raised us up with Christ, another with Christ, and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it's by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not from you, it's just God's gift, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. We didn't do good, and then God brought us in. We did nothing to deserve it, and God brought us in, and then as a result of that, he gives us good works to do. It's just sort of a natural part of that. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision... (laughs) Uh, that's pretty funny, actually. The circumcision. Like, that's their name, right? It reminds me of another word when people call themselves the... Yeah. Anyway. 
that done in the body of the hands of men. Remember that at the time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope, without God in the world. But now in Christ, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. Again, so many of these objective truths of identity. You were far from God. God brought you near. You were in the ground dead in your sin. He brought you up, raised and made you alive in Christ. Objective truths about being a Christian. Not things that are in the process, not things that, you know, possibly one day happens, the next day doesn't. They're just there. They've happened. It's done. It's objective. As objective as these things with faith and belief can really be, they have been accomplished, have been done. Okay? But now in Christ Jesus, you who were far away have been brought near, for he himself is our peace who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. This gets a little complicated, but he's just basically saying, in the flesh, not meaning the body, but the simple nature, we used to be powerless, have no control over really what we wanted to do. God has abolished that and given us the ability, along with his spirit, to become a new kind of people, to not be enslaved by the things that once enslaved us. Uh, humanism tells us for the most part, this whole spirit world doesn't exist. We are who we are. We have natural forces. We can grow up. We can become psychologically mature. We can become evil. But for the most part, it's our responsibility. Paul, in very anti-humanistic terms, says that's not the truth. You, at the core of who you are, are very weak. You have no ability to do what you choose to want to do. You're either being ruled by the kingdom, uh, uh, the king of the air, or being ruled by God. It's just either or. You're too weak to decide these things on your own. God created you that way so that you would be dependent on him. Okay? So, his purpose was to create himself one new man and out of the two, thus making peace, and in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Now, let's just uh, focus in on this last part here. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of apostles and prophets with, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. Um, you know, the whole household thing doesn't make much sense to us anymore because we don't tend to think in terms of households. We tend to think in terms of families. But for these Galatian people to be brought into the household of God, to serve him as their master, was huge. It was all-encompassing. It was what would create the very basis of their identity. We tend not to take our identity much uh, from our immediate family. I mean, we do, but don't think about it that much. None of you are going around trying to impress people with your last name, right? I don't think so. I mean, unless you have like a really cool last name, like uh, glad I didn't say what came to my mind, but Tijlaka, whatever his last name is. He and Brittany. Who, who can even say that, right? Or Bideker. Okay. So we don't necessarily understand the significance of this, but it wouldn't take too long for you to understand just how important this would have been to them, and we have to work on that a little bit to make it make sense to us. So in him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. 
Now, this is the subjective part of this entire passage, is that all of these things that have happened to you, objectively, lead to the subjective truth that God is, through the Spirit, building up his people into being the temple of God. Now, this is a crazy thought because, again, the temples were always about people going to a place to worship God, a place that was holy, uh, sacred, and apart from who they were. And that God takes this place and dignifies it by the bodies of a whole bunch of people, not to mention that he puts his spirit in us as a place as well, to grow us into being the kingdom around us is really an amazing truth. But it's a subjective truth. It's an ongoing thing. We're being built up. The church is being built up to represent the kingdom of God, to be the place on earth where people can go and actually see God's character. That's a high calling, and unfortunately, we don't live up to it very often, but there's grace. The same as a person being built up to in himself or herself reflect the very character of God. You have a question? Yeah, God made us, uh, you know, weak uh, so that we would be dependent on him. I mean, the whole idea of, of him giving us the same power that he would give, let's say, um, well, I mean, even the angels and stuff, God's not going to beget himself. He's not going to make himself, right? He is in existence. So if we were not weak, if we really truly were like Adam and Eve thought they could become, we would be on par with God. Most of us think we are uh, from day to day. But uh, the whole point of human existence is to depend on God, if that makes sense. Kind of? Sure? Yeah? Yeah. Okay. Cool. Great. Well, that's good. Uh, and I'm certainly not advocating that, you know, humans have no, um, you know, uh, volition, no will, no ability to do anything. That's a whole other argument we're not going to get into. The point here is just to try to find identity markers, things that are important for us to see. So the subjective here is, uh, is very, very important. In some ways, it dignifies the body, which in that day uh, wasn't dignified at all. Uh, Platonic, Stoic thought, all of that thought the body was really a terrible thing, awful thing, and that only matter was really important. We've had various uh, revisions of this over the years. Some of us in the modern age basically thought that the rational mind was the most important thing, right? And in some ways, that's Neoplatonism. It's uh, Platonism. I don't know how to say that. I'm not that well educated about that kind of stuff. And uh, it's the idea that, uh, you know, uh, our bodies are sort of less than, not important. You know, this uh, immortality of the soul that most Christians believe that somehow in heaven we're going to be like these, you know, spirits roaming around. So I don't know how we're going to have wings, if that's the case. Maybe we have wings on a spirit. Uh, ugly. We all look the same, I guess. Uh, unless our wings are different, and then we'll all just compare each other to the wing uh, length and color and number of feathers and things like that. Uh, but know that, that very much heaven is a, a bodily experience when the new resurrection talks about our bodies. I'll throw in another really interesting idea from Gregory of Nyssa, who was a uh, early church father. He's one of the er earliest church fathers, and he did not believe that in heaven we would be truly made perfect. He believed that heaven was a, a constant process of growing closer and closer to God, and that for eternity that, that happened. This idea that, you know, pop, you're in heaven, and then you become perfect, and it's like, oh, well, that was easy, uh, just didn't really resonate with him. He thought about this whole idea of ongoing growth, ongoing growing closer to God was important. Now, you deal with that. I don't know how to work with that. That's kind of uh, different. Uh, but anyway, yeah. So I want to read through Psalm 18 real quick here, because I think that in Psalm 18, we get some of these ideas teased out. So Again, just to reiterate in a very short amount of time what I tried to accomplish here. It seems like maybe a duh thing to you, 
But as you're looking back to identity, I think it's very important for us to understand both how the objective things that God has done for us are just as important and just as tied to the subjective, excuse me, things that he is doing for us. Because if we get them confused, we'll start working for the objective things that are already given to us, or we'll look back on the objective things as the only thing that was important and stay pretty much stunted in our growth. Or what's possibly even worse in some ways is we can think about growth as a Christian, growing, 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 as simply modeling and imitating the behaviors of people around us without really founding any of those behaviors and ethics and ideas into the objective truths of what have already taken place. That this whole thing is us being built up into the kingdom and character of God, not just playing church and playing nice Western Christian people. So there's a lot of issues and problems that can come out of not understanding both what God is currently doing in us and what he has already done, okay? Too many of us are Christians by proxy, sort of call it in. We're like, yeah, objectively, it's all this great stuff to us, but subjectively, you know, I've got other important things to do. Yeah. Okay. Uh, others done the, uh, both, sides both sides of it. Yeah. So in my mind, uh, you know, Christians by proxy is kind of the most common example. F folks who, you know, talk a lot about their salvation moment, they've been saved, they've been washed, they've been all these things, but have no real clue what God is doing currently in their life. You ask them what's going on, and it's all going back to the objective things that have already been done. I'm an engineer who was hired as an engineer, and someone says, well, how's the engineering going? What are you growing in? Well, you know, yeah, I got hired. It was awesome. So, and every time you ask them for what they're learning and how they're growing, it's, yep, I got hired. It's been about three, four years now. I was hired. Man, the experience was awesome. It was great. So, it's for the most part what I'm learning. Uh, and you're like, well... Okay, hmm, that's really interesting. That's not the subjective part. You thought you'd actually maybe have learned something by now, like a door latch on a car, you know? Um, I had so much fun with Tong. Tong sat in the heat for an hour and a half watching me work on a car, uh, and uh, that was really, really enjoyable. I absolutely loved that. It made doing that really annoying job so much better. <clears throat> the subjective Christian, I think, is much more of the legalist, pharisaical Christian, which is someone who's still working towards the objective stuff that's already been done. Maybe this is a Christian who thinks of their body as super sinful and can never sort of, you know, accept grace, accept forgiveness. Uh, and so they're constantly working to try to make God pleased with them, accept salvation. Uh, some of the folks who grew up in the Church of Christ kind of came from this background of working really hard to accomplish the things that God said he already accomplished. It's like, Dude, you know, I got hired, and each day I kind of go in, I work really, really hard, and I'm like, do I have the job still? And the guy's like, yeah, remember I hired you. Uh, we're good. Every day, same thing, really hard, doing what everyone else around me is doing, not really thinking for myself, and do I still have the job every day? Well, yeah, you still got the job. I mean, for now, I mean, you're not going to have it for very long if you keep living like that, but uh, maybe. Okay, in metaphors, maybe it helps a little bit, yeah. I didn't want to go too long in this, and I didn't want to give too many practical applications simply because this is the entire series, right? So for the rest of the series, we're going to be unpacking this pretty simple idea, what God has done objectively, what God is doing subjectively. And then the third point, which I really haven't gotten to, and it seems a little strange, but it is the most practical, is once God is doing something subjectively in you, you begin to apply that into your relationships with other people. It isn't just a dead thing. 
like God's growing you sort of by, you know, um, osmosis every night. It's an applied thing. As you take on the idea that I'm becoming uh, with other people, and, and so much of the we passages make sense here when it comes to this applied thing, because we're talking about all of us together. We're all being built up into the holy temple of the Lord. People being built up into the temple of the Lord. It just doesn't make any sense in the modern day and age or throughout Christian history. Temples were buildings. They were places where you go to meet God. And the people of God now are people where you go to meet God. And as that builds up, you begin to apply that in the situations you're in. You don't just say every day, yeah, I'm being built up into the temple. Yeah, right. But what are you actually doing? How are you applying any of that understanding to actual growth and becoming, you know, who... uh, who, you know, you've been said to become, okay? So we live out that, uh, you know, some of us understand certainly certain jobs have better cultures than others. You've been in a job that has a really great culture. That culture has been built up through a people applying the ethics and principles of the, the job. It didn't just happen. You don't just show up at a company and the culture is really great by accident, okay? Well, it's the same thing in the kingdom of God, okay? We, those things get built up uh, and uh, there, as we apply those things that we're understanding. So Psalm 18, 130, I'm closing off with this. So yeah, so uh, uh, Psalm 18, here we go. I love you, God, you make me strong. God is bedrock under my feet, the castle in which I live. My rescuing knight, my God, the high crag where I run for dear life, hiding behind the boulders, safe in the granite hideout. Sing to God the praise lofty and find myself safe and saved. The hangman's noose was tight at my throat. Devil waters rushed over me. Hell's ropes cinched me tight. Death traps barred every exit. If you're lost, by the way, and you're like, what Bible is he reading? There's a message. I mentioned that last week, the message, which is sort of like a metaphorical adaptation of the scripture, all right? So that's really good to read in an RSV so you can get a literal sense and uh, you know, this message, which is a much more idiomatic sense. And then the NIV is terrible to read the psalm from. A hostile world. I call to God. I cry to God to help me. From his palace, he hears my call. My cry brings me right into his presence, a private audience. So gosh, think about how much of this is, is just reiterating. And in fact, it came way before Ephesians. This idea of having a place where God is. Is God drawing me near to him, a private audience? That my identity in Christ is getting a private audience with God. One that many of us don't ever take advantage of, but still, it's objectively there. And so, so much of the Psalms are, are uh, you know, a great place to kind of, in, in figurative terms, remind us of who we really are before God. Both the objective and the subjective truths uh, of, uh, of that salvation. The earth wobbles and lurches, huge huge mountains shake like leaves, quake like aspen leaves because of his rage. His nostrils flare, bellowing smoke, his mouth spits fire, tongues of fire dart in and out. He lowers the sky, steps down under his feet, and the abyss opens up. He's riding a winged creature, swift on wind wings. Now he's wrapped himself in a trench coat of black cloud darkness, but his cloud brightness bursts through, spraying hailstones and fireballs. The God thundered out of heaven. The high God gave a great shout, spraying hailstones and fireballs. God shoots his arrows pandemonium. He curls as lightning a route. The secret sources of ocean are exposed. The hidden depths of earth lie uncovered. The moment you roar in protest, let loose your hurricane anger. But me he caught, reached all the way from sky to sea. He pulled me out of that ocean of hate, that enemy chaos. 
the void in which I was drowning, made alive in Christ, raised from the dead. They hit me when I was down, but God stuck by me. He stood me up on a wide open field, stood there saved, surprised to be loved. I stood there saved, surprised to be loved. God made my life complete when I placed all the pieces before him. When I got my act together, he gave me a fresh start. Now I'm alert to God's ways. I don't take God for granted. Every day I review the ways he works. I try not to miss a trick. I feel put back together and I'm watching my step. God rewrote the text of my life when I opened the book of my heart to his eyes. The good people taste your goodness. The whole people taste your health. The true people taste your truth. The bad ones can't figure you out. You take the side of the down and out. With the stuck up, you take down a peg. Suddenly, God, you floodlight my life. I'm blazing with glory, God's glory. I smash the bands of marauders. I vault the highest fences. What a good, what a God. His road stretches straight and smooth. Every God direction is road tested. Everyone who runs toward him makes it. So there's a lot there that you could go and revisit and think through even in the context of what subjective things he's talking about doing in his own ability and participating with God and those things that were already really done for him. I'm going to say a prayer and then we're going to take communion together. And those of you who are new to our communion, we've got people in the back. You can dip the bread in the juice. And uh, I had a visitor last week ask me, so what are some scriptures uh, that, uh, you know, sort of, lay the foundation for how you guys do communion because you do communion in a little bit of a strange way. And uh, it was a good conversation. You know, we talked about it. Um, we do communion in a more celebratory way. You look back to the early church at how they did communion and they spent a lot of their time building communion into the meals that they had. Uh, many of these were what are called love feasts, celebratory meals. And a couple of the scriptures that... Uh, I think lay the foundation of what we do is number one, one of the most serious scriptures about communion comes from 1 Corinthians and some of the richer people doing communion uh, without the poor people. And the idea that everybody is coming to do communion together as a recognition, as a we recognition of the things that we're applying in Christ. And so that's one thing. Some of this reverent, penitent, sit my face down and try to think about how sinful I am can be helpful, but it's also very individualistic. And I'm not even for sure that's really what Jesus was going for when he simply said, remember me. And uh, the idea of remembering him in the presence of him, uh, you know, he was thinking about how we treat people and what we do. And so we try to do that collectively and celebrate that together. Uh, we don't do communion anywhere near like the early church did, but I don't know of a church that does. Uh, and so there's a lot of leeway in terms of what we do. But uh, I definitely want you to know that we have thought about that and try to do what would be honoring to God. Thank you, God, for Jesus, for giving us a way out uh, of being ruled by the kingdom of the air, by being ruled by the various spirits that encourage our disobedience, encourage our self-sufficiency, lead us into pits that we can't get out of on our own. Thank you, God, for what you've done for us, specifically for giving us Jesus, that we could understand uh, how you want us to live and have a perfect model and image of how that looks. We love you, Lord. We worship you um, through our songs and through our thinking and through um, just the way that we treat each other. Amen.
Thanks for joining us for our sermon podcast. We would love for you to join us on Sunday morning or in one of our small groups during the week. And you can get more information about that at DentonNorthChurch.com.